0: tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenay Co-op Radio, broadcasting out of Nelson, B.C. The two-hour show airs every Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. and repeats every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The first hour is mostly about music, to shift you into high gear.
1: And the second hour is all about empowering discussions to grow your mind, body, and soul. In today's second hour, we'll be interviewing local author Tom Wayman, who wrote the book If You're Not Free at Work, Where Are You Free?
0: So make sure to stay tuned for Hour 2. We always like to start our show out with a bit of humor, and today will be no different. I spent a fair amount of time editing out F-bombs for this one. Here's Cat Williams delivering some of his typical edgy but hilarious whip, followed by Elliot Murphy and Chrissy Hind. Enjoy.
1: And remember, shift happens when you get out of your comfort zone.
0: Shift Happens with Jeff and Anna. Enjoy the show.
2: Don't be ashamed to fucking say it. We're better than they are. We work harder. We try harder. Nothing beats us. We have kicked this recession so motherfucking hard. First of all, niggas, let me say, we didn't even know it was a recession until they gave it a word. This is shit niggas was doing the whole time, white people. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Get yourself some Top Ramen. Make yourself comfortable. This is beautiful. America ain't about what the fuck happens to you. America is about what the fuck you do when shit happens to you. So now, I have to come back and tell my people they finna fuck us. When you go home into your 2012, understand they already have concentration camps in the United States of motherfucking America that they've been building for four years now. And the question is, who in the fuck is you finna put in there? We already got a prison and that motherfucker is so packed. Cause at the end of the day, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit, white people. Conrad Murray got four years and ain't gonna do but two of them and motherfuckers looking at it like he got what he deserves how the fuck do you figure he got what the fuck he deserves you can murder a billionaire and get two and a half years and probation these niggas had me on six years of probation for a blunt i hadn't lit yet
0: Tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio, broadcasting out of Nelson, BC. The two-hour show airs every Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. and repeats every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The first hour is mostly about music to shift you into high gear.
1: And the second hour is all about empowering discussions to grow your mind, body, and soul. In today's second hour, we'll be interviewing local author Tom Wayman, who wrote the book If You're Not Free at Work, Where Are You Free?
0: You're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenay Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff.
1: And I'm Anna. We are interviewing Tom Weyman of WinLaw, right? Right. Tom? Uh, Tom has written quite a number of books, but the latest one is called, If You're Not Free at Work, Where Are You Free? And as I've been reading this collection of essays, I realized how profoundly true it is that we do not work in democracies. And yet many of us don't actually think about that as a reality. It, it kind of really made me listen to programs, to TV, to, to movies, to, to conversations about work in a whole different way and realize, yeah, no wonder I hated work so much.
3: Well, well yeah, I think you're helped to not think about it by the, a kind of silence, um, what I call in the book, a kind of taboo about looking at what happens to people at work and then how does what happens to people at work affect their lives off the job as parents, as citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, what I argue is that work is still pretty much organized for most people in a very hierarchical way, uh, going back to the industrial revolution where um, it's yes or no, sir, three bags full. You're just expected to obey orders and the people giving you the orders are in fact an unelected authority you don't get to choose mm-hmm. and we've so um, um that, that way of, of organizing work has has so settled in that the, the concept of that work could be a democratic part of life um, is just off the table uh, for many years um, the the kind of social change aspect of the trade union movement would raise that constantly yeah when one of the one of the um arguments in favor of having unions, as well as as improving daily life now, was that eventually it would lead to a democratization of the workplace. Um, but but because um we shuttle between these two states of mind, off work, um, where the free citizens of a democracy, where the fate of the nation lies in our capable hands, mm-hmm. but the moment you you go to work, um, in most cases, like I say, you're just expected to shut up and be obedient, don't ask questions. In fact, the qualities that are expected of a citizen, which is to be a critical thinker and 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 you know discuss things and so on, are the exact opposite of the qualities we want in an employee. In an employee we want someone who's a team player, doesn't question management, mm-hmm. just puts their shoulder to the wheel. And this constant shuttling between a state of unfreedom and a state of freedom, and then Um, we get off work, you got 16 hours, you're back to a state of unfreedom again. I believe this does affect, as I say, how we function, um, as a community. Mm -hmm. And, and if I can move the camera back a little bit, um, you, you see it in, in a community where, because the community as a whole has no control over the workplace, when a, when a major employer leaves the area, the community has nothing to say about it. And we saw this in Nelson, most dramatically in 1984, when in the same year, CUNY Forest Products shut down, mm-hmm. the, diesel, the CPR diesel repair shop, which employed a lot of people, shut down, and David Thompson University Center shut down, and the town was devastated, and, and property values totally collapsed. Um, you walked up and down Baker Street; almost every place was empty or for rent, um, and uh, and now again with the, with the shutting of Insight. You know the, the town has nothing to say about that. Those jobs are lost. Um, whatever subsidies have been given to help those enterprises exist doesn't matter um, because we conceive of work as being the opposite of democracy. And
1: the cooperative movement has kind of taken that on as a challenge.
3: Well, co-ops began at a time when there was an aspect to the trade union movement that had to do with social change. Right. But, in, but in fact. Um, they have to exist, as has been pointed out, inside a capitalist environment—an environment, an environment mm-hmm. where um, making um, where, where democracy is not extended to the workplace. That's the essence of capitalism. Believe me. Yeah. And so, how can a cooperative venture s- survive in that in- environment? It's like trying to have a family farm in a, in a, a landscape where everything else is is agribusiness. Um, so, what's happened to the cooperative movement is that. Um, it, if you like, it, it has adopted all the, all, the, all the trappings of an undemocratic workplace, despite some quack quack about this and that. Right. Um, so the example I, I would give would be that if this was a democracy, where you'd think that um, would a workplace that would at least, at least these workplaces would be run democratically, would be government, right? Yes. Because if, if governments so in favor of democracy then surely the public sector, those workplaces would be democratic. In
1: and, my experience in government, actually, it's worse. Yes, I was going to say.
3: Yeah, it, it, they're they like super capitalists. Yeah, in, in the, in their Thinking and, and bureaucratic to the
0: nth degree. They're in favor of democracy when they're not the party in
3: power. Yes. Right, yeah. 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 Right? <laughs> but yes, exactly. Um, so... It, it's that issue. It's the same as when people think, okay, I don't I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to work in an undemocratic environment, so I will be a, a writer, an artist, an entrepreneur. Um, they try to remove themselves mm-hmm. from that undemocracy and hats off to them, but their children, their relatives, their neighbors are all still going through that daily schizophrenic shuttle yeah. between um, a mindset that's democratic and a mindset that's undemocratic and then back and forth. Um, so you're never really free as long, as long as the majority of people have to spend their working life in an undemocratic, um, environment, you, yes. you can't escape. And, and I'll say this too that, um, that, that, that lack of democracy often means that Bad decisions are made, um, to put it mildly.
1: Yes, very bad. I, you know, I've been struggling with that, and and reading Charles Eisenstein's latest book about the reasons why we haven't responded to climate change. A lot of it is about that we have been disempowered as citizens to believe that we have any control over the decisions of large corporations, yes. and it's primarily those decisions that are driving climate change, and it's it's always this schism, even in the school system. I mean, in my experience, raising two children that I wanted to be critical thinkers, I found they were going to school and learning how to obey ridiculous orders. Yes, And yes. so we ended up having to homeschool them in order to maintain some sense of their ability to problem solve in the real world.
3: If I, I can take those two points, like the first one about about climate change, I've argued that uh, the environmental movement will never be successful unless they take up the cudgels for the democratization of work. Because unless there's uh, control by people of the enterprises, and how that works, like whether it involves community people on the boards of large enterprises, you know, there's a million ways to solve that. But unless that goes on, um, we're doomed because because um, profit-driven hierarchical structures are not going to save the planet.
1: I totally agree.
3: And as for schools, I always get people to read Charles Dickens' Hard Times, which is about the beginnings of mass public education, which were, of course, factory schools. Um, And then finally, the factory owners realized because they needed to train people to put up with obeying orders, put up with boredom, and especially to put up to um, the idea of measured time, which in an agricultural world, you know, you you, you didn't didn't do it by the minute. Um, Anyway, um, when you read hard times, you realize at a certain point, the factory owners realize we can get the state to pay for this. We don't have to pay for schooling. But but the virtues that are still taught in schools largely are the factory virtues, which mm-hmm. is to put up with boredom, obey orders, as you say, no matter how goofy. Um, and uh, it, it's not that, I mean, it, these things are complicated. I'm making them seem simple. Um, I once spoke in Rochester, New York to a group called the Rochester Education Alliance, um, uh, and what they what they were up against was that um, students from underprivileged backgrounds, meaning black kids, um, they they would they didn't understand because they were they weren't they weren't in school that much um, that on a job you were expected to put up with all those things. So the moment they were hired, they would and if something came up they didn't like, they would just leave.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So
3: the Rochester School Board began to give a certificate of employability, which meant that you had attended class so many percentages and so on that you were a good, obedient person. So um, this group, which was mostly trade union people, said that thing that I said at the beginning, that um, they realized that the virtues of a citizen are Mm -hmm. totally antithetical to the virtues of an employee. And um, they felt that you did kids no favors if if you just trained them to be critical thinkers so they wouldn't put up with stuff at work. Because how are they going to survive themselves? Mm-hmm. How are they going to survive? But at the same time, um, you didn't do kids any favors if you just train them to train them to be obedient and not to not not to be able to think critically. So how do we navigate between those two um, until such time as there is a movement for the democratization of work? Um, it, it's these are not. These are not easy questions. No, to because really,
1: with. I have struggled with that very thing my whole life. Uh, either I, I am, I guess, by nature, a critical thinker, and I struggle with how to solve the problems of society. But I find myself constantly challenged in a work environment, so I have to navigate my way through work as someone who knows, I'm not going to deal well with certain kinds of businesses, certain kinds of corporations. I'm just going to end up rebelling.
3: <laughs> so yep. probably well, not
1: a good place to go.
3: Well, most people in the workforce have um, what we used, we used to call a, d- a double consciousness. Like, like on the one hand, they know a lot of what they're asked to do is, is stupid or insane or, mm-hmm. or counterproductive. But um, in order to, to have a paycheck and and survive economically, they're going to, they're going to do, do it. Um, so one of the things you find a lot of in the workplace is humor and it's that kind of black humor. People make right. all these jokes about individuals and processes and, and the company, um, which is sort of how people get through that, that undemocratic, um, day. If you like, Right. Um, that
0: would explain shows like the office. Yes. Or Dilbert.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, Almost any place I've worked, there is a whole, a whole set of jokes that sort of go along, go along with it to um, rede-
1: relieve the tension in the office. And,
3: and um, yeah, so so humor becomes an important part of this. Like like although what we're talking about is deadly serious, um, we don't want to lose our sense of humor about it. It is absurd mm-hmm. that the politicians will quack endlessly about democracy when every day we're spending eight hours in a totally undemocratic environment and know it. So people have this just total double consciousness. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the dark sides, which, which I touched on, which um, I'll I'll bring up again is that um, because of that hierarchical structure, um, it it doesn't have a good result for the community. And I I know I've said that before, but let me try and Mm -hmm. come back to that, which, which, which is just that um, if, if, if people who feel powerless are making are making decisions, because there's always someone further up the baboon tree, as it were, mm-hmm. who you have to kowtow to, um, it it it's no wonder that um, a lot of these enterprises, whether public or private, are so dysfunctional. Um, and and more and more in the 21st century, I hear people ranting to me about whether it's a whether it's a public enterprise or a private one about how it doesn't work or they can't get out of it the service or product that they're supposed to get
0: mm-hmm. and
3: to me that makes sense that that should happen because um it it's you, you you don't as i say in that book you don't build paradise with slave labor it's just not going to happen um, you 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 need thinking critically thinking people um, the, the good news, which is also bad news, is that I believe that climate change has put pressure now on. I think that um, because these enterprises, public or private, these structures are so incapable of making the changes that we need, that that hopefully it will reinvigorate um, a a movement for the democratization of work, um, just just out of dire necessity. Well, Um, there's
1: a bright side to climate change. We should take a break.
3: Yeah, I think it would be a good idea.
0: We've been doing this for about 15 minutes or so. So we'll play a tune and then we'll be back. So hold on. We are interviewing Tom. Wayman. I was gonna say Waitman, but totally different. Uh, one's a musician and one's a poet. I guess poets are musicians too, lyrically. I'm gonna shut up now and okay. just push play. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. All right, so you're in the middle of a fascinating interview with our guest. Tom Wayman. Tom Wayman. I'm always brutal with people's names. i got to write it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> he needs Or jars. just use my psychic ability, and then it's not up there. Yeah, yeah there you no go. There's no problem. Anyway, so what we just heard before we came back on was a few excerpts from a project that we did called The Red Pill. But we also had a song that Tom recommended. And what was that? That's Stan
3: Ridgway, and the song is called I Want to Be a Boss. Excellent. Very cool. As
1: you were mentioning in your collection of essays, there aren't all that many songs written about work, actually.
3: Yeah, well, there were work songs, which were, you know, originally... Chain Gang? Yeah, well, or just... um, Sea shanties, right. things that were done to kind of um or or uh, field haulers. Um gonna jump down, turn around, pick a bale of cotton, you're gonna jump down, turn right. around, pick a bale of the day. Um that that kind of um way that made the work go faster. But mm-hmm. um, you know, of course that people don't do now. Um so so um but yeah, I mean in the book I talk about um one of the ways people handle the fact that um, For the center part of the day the part of the day in which they contribute to the community not as a consumer but as a producer that's all taboo we're not supposed to look at that so there's very little about about work in our in our cultural environment so you can can go to a, a literary festival go to a bookstore go to a publisher's fair and although work is what most people do all day although work is how the community is fed clothed housed educated and the children are raised, um, there's no mention of work in any of those situations. The, the few examples that break the taboo really just underscore it. Mm-hmm. And in the book of essays and some of the essays, I relate that to how uh, for many, many years in literature, women's experiences were taboo. You didn't, you didn't talk about how um, w- the situation of women affected not just women, but men and the society at large. And we have that same taboo. Now you can talk about that. And in fact, a lot of, of cultural energy goes into, um, women talking about their own lives, but, but work is still, um, taboo, um, whether it's done by men or, or women. Um, and, and, um, the, the two things are not unrelated. You, you may remember the Me Too movement, um, which largely focused, um, uh, weirdly enough on actresses, people that, that were not themselves when they, when they worked. But the real story of sexual harassment is the women in trades movement. Um, in the last century, when um, legislation came in, uh, in, the United States forcing um, the unions and companies to begin hiring women in the trades and the, fr- and the first groups of women went through apprenticeship, the goal was that by the year 2000, fifteen percent for example of the trades would be women and it's never gone above two percent and there's there's women um, writers that's how I, I know them who have who have who have have argued about how um, women love the tools they love the job um, we have actually trained in apprenticeship programs um, tens of thousands of women but they drop out of the trades because the sexual harassment is at such a high level and and the Companies don't do anything about it. The unions don't do anything about it, and government doesn't do anything about it. And uh, the 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 result is that you have this huge pool of trained people who who are denied um, the chance to practice what they've learned. The the way they distinguish it between the states and Canada is they say in this in Canada it's harassment, verbal harassment. So in the states it's murder. Um, one of the um people i know um who began as a poet but was in the first class in boston of of women that were trained as electricians susan eisenberg has a whole art show about about women who are killed on the job um as a form of harassment uh, we don't want your kind working here and and it's quite it's quite powerful stuff um need, needless to say um and and obviously um the whole thing is interconnected if 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 women are given a chance, you know, if, if you if you end that, if you really look at what goes on in the workplace, end that harassment. You don't you don't have to strip the third world of people who are tradespeople and bring them over here to do the jobs. Yeah. Because, quote there aren't enough people in the trades.
1: I know um, personally, I've heard stories of women police officers, similar situation, yes. like horrible harassment. Even myself, uh, when I was in the corporate world, I did project management of large-scale projects. And one of the aspects of my job was both design and also going to the job site and supervising that process, the actual construction process. And I used to joke about how bad it was that I would have to put on a fake persona in order to go on the job site and be able to do my job. Because I got so much disrespect as a young woman, that they I was incapable of giving them direction that they would actually follow. Simply because I was a woman, even though they really didn't have any choice but to follow it, they would do all kinds of stupid things in the process.
3: Yeah, and and you know people say, "Well, we can't we can't change this." But um, if you if you look at how safety stuff was brought into the workplace, um, it was all resisted. But it, but it was all accepted in the end. So everything from, um, people having to wear hard hats and mm-hmm. reflective vests and, and boots, or I know people that worked in the oil patch and, you know, in the beginning that was all rough and ready and it had one of the highest rates of accidents anywhere. Um, and then, and then they simply began to demand that, that is the companies and unions, such unions as there are in, in the, in the oil patch, began to demand that people follow this stuff. So, um, it's got to the point now, for example, if, um, if a carload's coming back into a camp and and contraband is found in it, alcohol or, or um, drugs, they fire everybody in the car. They don't try to argue about whose who's it is. These wow. kind of in, enormous measures or people have talked about how now if there's an accident, all work stops and there's a safety meeting right away. Stuff that was unheard of 20 years ago in the patch, but now it's sort of standard operating procedure. Same thing could be done with harassment of women if if they wanted to. But it, it's again, that's the big question, though. If yeah, but it, it comes if if you have an area that's taboo that we're not allowed to look at, then all kinds of things can go on there. And I'm just using this yeah as as one as one example.
1: You mentioned the fact that the Me Too movement has primarily focused on actresses, and that is actually something I recently wrote about. It's it it's frustrated me that we somehow give more credibility to the people who are famous getting abused than we do to what we would call the common woman. Well,
3: well I think it's, I, to me, it's a side effect of if, if you don't want to look at the workplace, right, where productive labor takes place, right, mm-hmm. where, where society is fed, clothed, housed, and where, in fact, all the power relations are reproduced every day on the job. If you don't want to look at that, then the significant people in your society are not going to be the people that feed you or house you or educate you or, or make a, a business run. The people are significant are going to be the drones and parasites. So it's going to be corporate sports people. They're significant. Actors and actresses. They're significant. Mm-hmm. Politicians who do no useful work, as far as I can tell. Um, they're the significant ones and all your focus and attention is going to go on that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex issue, but to me it comes down to if you have an undemocratic workplace a whole lot of things follow from that mm-hmm. and one of them is who is considered significant in the society who are the important people and and to me it's exactly backwards now. yeah
1: you mentioned that it really struck me in the book talking about the fact that because we can't value what we do in the workplace we value only ourselves as consumers yeah. and and those parts of us who actually kind of become something consumable, like actors and actresses yes. and sports people. And it was a really interesting way to look at that because I have asked myself the same question. Why on earth is it that we so disproportionately value these people who don't really contribute anything?
3: Yes. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it is a structure um, that I believe is unstable. Like, like this mm-hmm. will go on. Who knows how long? But but eventually, um, because it's so crazy, and and it's idolatry. Yes, yeah. that's really what it is. Yeah, the corporations
0: have put these individuals at the top of the pile. They've put all kinds of money behind them to make them stand out in comparison to everyone else. And then what they say is, okay, if you want to be cool, you have to wear their
3: clothes. Yes. Yeah. You have to drive their car.
1: Again, it's all about it's, becoming consumers.
3: Exactly. And, and just on a personal level, I think people need two things. They need, they need hope and pride. And, and I think that um, the whole celebrity world, um, it, it provides that for people that can't find it anywhere else. So, you know, you hope one day to be as rich as those people and you take, you take pride in exactly as you say that the things that you own that they also own, or, or you've got a knockoff version of it. Um, and again, if you go back to the beginnings of, of the trade union movement, um, or even or even through the 60s and, and 70s, um, people would take pride in the job that they did, and their hope was that collectively we could change society for the better. But but that's off the table at the moment. Uh,
1: yeah, you mentioned two other things that I, I ha- myself have Noted in my lifetime, and one is that the fact that the trade union movement stopped working towards social change and just started collective bargaining for wages. I mean, really, to me, the, the huge value, and I'm not surprised that people have pretty much given up on the trade union movement because they stopped being relevant.
3: Well, well, it's it's complicated because um, it it's. I mean, you have two things going on at once. Ever since the trade movement began, there was always these two streams. There was the one that said, the whole rationale for unions is you have as much right to be a free citizen on the job as you have a right to be a free citizen off the job. And so that was social change unionism. So you might fight for more of the good things of life today, but you always had your eye on the prize, which, which was um, where enterprises would be under the control of the people whose work made them happen. But at the same time, there was always a, a conservative wing that said, no, no, um, what the trade union is about is simply um, a group of people who will bargain to get you a better deal. In other words, kind of like slave brokers, right, who will sell your labor at a higher rate than before. And a number of things conspired to um, eliminate the social change union stream. Um, most recently, it was the Cold War and, and in the States and then, and then in Canada legislation made it impossible for people we held ideas about social change notably communists um, to hold office in the in the union movement and that got rid of a lot of energy people that were very energetic uh, whether they were communists or not but were attracted to that other vision so that that was one real initiative that that um put a stopper in it but the second thing was if you look at the legislation that came in um i think it was in 1972 in british columbia NDP brought in all kinds of changes to how unions could form that made it way more difficult for unions to form. And
1: it was the NDP that did that.
3: That's their job. I mean, whenever, whenever corporate Canada needs something drastic done, they let the NDP take office. I mean, look at Site C. It's a perfect example. There's no way that would get through under the, under the Liberals. So we let the NDP win and, and then they do it and then we'll throw them out at the next election and life goes on. Um, it, it's not a, It's not a social change organization. I know people constantly want it to be. They want it to be a labor party. They want it to be. um, One of the things this time that um, was brought brought to my attention was that uh, one of the promises the NDP made this time was to to get rid of that 1972 legislation and and let it so you could form a union by by, um, what they call a card check, which means if over half the number of people on the job had signed up in the union, it was an automatic. Union certification. That's what they took out in 72 and instituted instead. That only started a process which went on and on and on and ended in a vote. And that by lengthening out the process, it gave the boss more time to fire all the union activists, intimidate the rest. And so the number of of people in the union movement began to decline. The number of new certifications dropped. Anyway, the promise was in this last election, they would get rid of that and go back to card check. But apparently, Andrew Weaver was opposed to this um, being an academic who's lived his working life in a in a protected environment when you never lose your job it's very well paid compared to the average wage so on he didn't want he didn't want the car check I mean it just didn't mean anything to him so part of the deal for the great coalition um, was that, that the NDP would drop that so they did um, it it's but again I don't blame the particulars uh, as much as I mean they just sort of reinforced the argument that if if we don't look at how how work is organized and how that way that it's organized affects us off the job we just it's, it's just going to be always a horror story to relate
1: yeah um, we just have but, to start dealing with the things on a more fundamental level
3: i I believe so yeah it it um and and at at the community level too um that that idea that if if the community has no control over the enterprises that are that are there um you're, you're subject to that boom and bust. Um, and again, there can be enormous subsidy by public, by the public money or tax breaks or whatever for these enterprises, but, but the public gets nothing out of it, right? Like, say the bailout of the oil patch, the latest one, we're not going to own those oil companies. It's just straight gift to these companies that are paying their top executive millions of dollars, but somehow they're not going to kick any money into keeping the enterprise going. It has to be the public. But we get nothing out of it. So, if they decide to pull out of the Alberta oil patch, which a number of them have, it's just tough luck. Um, so it it's it's complicated. But you know, um, I I do. I'm still. I don't want the book to sound gloomy. Um, I'm quite an optimist. I think people are very ingenious and they they have a sense of humor. I mean, one of the great things about uh, all the madness south of the line was just how how funny people can be about, say, Trump and and his gang of
2: This is groups. true.
3: Um, and I think it's true with this too, the, the fact that uh, the humor may be black humor, but at least it's, it's humor in terms of how people cope with, with this undemocratic structure. Um, and people haven't given up. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, I just don't want to get too gloomy. It's, it's, yeah. We face some big problems, but um, the human race has faced big problems before. We've got rid of kings, we've got rid of slavery. Um, to a certain extent, We've at, least, we've at least started on the road to full equality for women. I mean, we haven't got there yet, but we've, we've come a certain distance down that road, all of which were unthinkable at one time. These were non-starters. Kings had a divine right to rule, end of story. Uh, slavery, the Bible said you could have slaves, so end of story. And women were inferior, end of story. There was just no question. So we not debatable things. Now, um, they've either disappeared or are on the process of disappearing. So I believe that democratization of work certainly can happen. In the, in the book, I, I talk about some situations in the 20th century where it was ended briefly in, in societies. And, and again, that gives you a lot of, a lot of hope. Here in BC, um, I keep referring back to the 1983 public sector general strike, which really was a time when everything was up for grabs. and People raised all these questions. Yeah, I'm raising in the book, what's a government for? What are unions for? What's a society for? What's our place in society? What, what are we supposed to be doing as a member of a community? All those questions were up for grabs, and uh, it, it was a pretty wild time. But um, it was also quite wonderful because all of a sudden people were able to talk about these things. It wasn't taboo anymore.
1: And perhaps there's enough pressure now from various different fronts that uh, we'll be able to experience something like that again—an exciting time of change. What's so. the
0: name of the book? Again, we should share that with the listeners.
1: It's Tom Wayman. If you're not free at work, where are you free? And we should take a break. Yeah. So we'll play another
0: tune and then we'll be back.
1: And we'll talk about possible solutions, maybe.
0: And a couple of questions that I want to ask. Okay. We'll be back. So, we're back. You're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. I'm Anna. And we are interviewing Tom. So, Tom, I wanted to ask you about what's come out, I don't know, in the last couple weeks about the liberal federal government talking about bringing in...
3: Guaranteed basic income. What's your opinion? Well, I think it's a diversion from... the problem, which is the democratization of work. Work's still going to go on, um, and uh, I, I think that um, the, the world of globalization has got itself in a pickle, which is that if you move production offshore, which they've done, have everything made by slaves in China, and it, interestingly, there's a, a wonderful book called Iron Moon, which is, which is work poems by Chinese, what they call migrant workers, people that have come from the countryside to work in those horrible factories. And, and there's a high suicide rate and so on. Uh, but anyway, as, as long as you're doing that, then you've got a problem, which is who's going to consume these goods which are being made in China? So exactly. the first way they deal with it is debt, right? So,
1: which we've pretty much maxed out now. Which,
3: which we've come pretty close to maxing out. So they, for example, like, universities used to be a place where you got an education in a subject. But now what they are mainly is debt training. It, it teaches young people how to have and carry a huge debt their whole life
0: that's Um, why they you know they have these tables set up at the colleges now where banks credit card companies are offering their plastic to -hmm. people who are just arriving and And it's so disgusting already have
3: a big student loan yeah so anyway so if 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 we max out debt then the next thing you have to do is is put money back into the system so um after all, even welfare when it came in because there was a time when there was no welfare, most of the money and and I've seen some numbers on this that that is given as welfare goes to the landlord and the grocery store right so really it's a subsidy to those businesses more than it is anything else uh, because it's not it's not a living wage so if you want to buy have people with enough money to buy trinkets from China as well as have, live in some kind of place and and buy groceries then Yeah, then then a guaranteed income. But but nothing changes in terms of um, the democratization of where society is reproduced. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And ultimately, we are now feeling these pressures from climate issues. I mean, all kinds of environmental issues, not just climate. And also, I feel like we're going through a sort of spiritual shift in our society, which is also creating, I think, some sort of existential pressure that we need to resolve these sort of underlying problems or we won't be able to respond to these crises.
3: Yeah. Well well like I said, I think people need hope and pride. Mm-hmm. And and right now the way people get it is not real it's not ethically or morally very satisfying to people. So
0: I uh, hope someone likes my post on Facebook.
1: That's about the extent of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sad.
0: I'm. I'm yeah. being oh, yeah. funny, yeah. but I'm
3: not. Yeah. No. I mean, no. That's the that's the modern right. day, right? Yeah. Or buying or buying lottery tickets. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where your hope is. That, yeah. Um. So anyway, I, I I. agree with you about about um, you know, having having different values. But again, I think that that different values come out of a, some sense of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And self-esteem is what you don't get in an undemocratic workplace. Um, you're, you're actually treated very much like a child not an adult, even though as soon as you're off the job, you're supposed to be this adult citizen that's controlling the country. Which
1: is r- really, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. So how do we solve such a systemic problem? Where do we start, you know, pulling the thread out?
3: Well, well traditionally um, in, in the, say, the last couple of centuries, where people's values um, changed for the better was in social struggle. In other words, where, where they began to want to, they had no, they had enough uh, self confidence that they thought that their lives could be better, and so in in taking up a struggle to to improvements, and that's everything from the suffragettes to, um, the sixties. Yeah, the sixties and so on. Um, though, those changes meant that people had to think hard about what what their values were,
1: mm-hmm. and
3: and I, I referenced the. Um, Public Sector General Strike in BC here in 83. That, it was going on at, 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 that, that rethinking your values was going on at just an accelerated pace. Mm-hmm. Um, change when it happens can change enormously fast. And we saw that, for example, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. where no one could believe that, that the whole thing was a house of cards. But, but I think what we have here is a house of cards too. And the reason I think that is how fast everything changed in 1983, where suddenly no one was interested in the legislature. They weren't interested in the Canucks. They weren't interested in Cheers or whatever was the big TV right. show. They, they began to talk to each other about, about how society was structured, and, and people got into all kinds of interesting arguments about what are we here for, what's the society for, what's what's my role right. in the community. Um, and,
0: and the th- cool part of it, if I can interrupt, is we have this thing called the interweb, <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: Where that can we spread didn't have quickly. those
0: discussions it, it was very difficult to have mm-hmm. those discussions back then, whereas now we travel at the speed of thought, yes in terms yes. of our communication right? yeah,
3: no it's- no, and ideas can spread even faster so mm-hmm. I, I'm not pessimistic, I do think that um, it is a house of cards and and it can come down, it can come down pretty fast and and uh, I think there's a moment when people are willing to um listen to those kinds of issues you raise about, um, you know, ethical or, or moral mm-hmm. or, or the, the whole value structures. Um. Uh,
1: you know, we, we frequently talk about the fact that if, if we can heal as individuals, then we develop self-worth. And once we develop that sense of self-worth, then we start to think critically about our surroundings and want that to reflect our self-worth. And then we start to want to improve our conditions and our relationships with other people. And that involves also work as well as family life. And so maybe maybe I've answered my own question. There has been this massive growth in self-improvement, self-actualization, healing, uh, inner child work, all of this stuff that is really being done in large part because of the internet and people having access to resources and support. And maybe that is driving the
3: process. Well, well certainly some of that, like um, a lot of the <clears throat> movers and shakers even even now in terms of structures and uh, new ideas came out of a period in the 60s where that was going on, where right. um, pe- people began to rethink. So like, like most of the independent Canadian publishers began in the 60s. I can, I can go on and on. There's a right. long list of, of social change social changes or cultural changes that, that came out of that mm-hmm. that that movement. It's just that um, it can't it can't substitute for the democratization of work. Yeah. Because you can be the most squared away person in the world. But if but if every eight hours you're treated like a child
1: mm-hmm. and,
3: and it's only when you're out in the parking lot or at the bus stop after work that you're allowed to be an adult and then tomorrow you have to go and do it again. Um, it would take an exceptional person to, to be able to maintain to, yeah um, but I
1: do think that the the pressure uh, on the workplace to to democratize is going to come out of people simply being unwilling to accept yes. those kinds of conditions, yes. and yes. that happens when people feel that they have enough of enough of an ability to think critically yes. and analyze their situation to say, "I don't agree with what's being done. I want this to change. I'm not willing to participate in this system as long as it's destructive."
3: Yes, and that and that you're worth. Um, functioning in a democratic environment. That, yes, that it's not. Um, it's not just um, that the way things are now is the only possible way to organize a, a society or an economy. Mm-hmm. But but um, and that comes out of a sense of self confidence. Mm-hmm. And and however people get that sense of self confidence, it's good. And I
1: sometimes think. it also comes out of a I have nothing left to lose.
3: Well, that I I I. I haven't found that to be true. No. That, that social change doesn't come out of the most oppressed societies, for example. What happens in the most oppressed societies, it seems, people scrabble to survive. Right. They don't have the energy for change. Um, people have talked about that, how the, the, the change agents in the 60s were, were um, young people who um, came out of a background that was, they, they were well educated. They often had um, less financial worries than, than lots of other people. And and they were the they were the spearheads. Other people um, eventually developed their own structures and so on. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't if you put people under a thumb, they don't. That isn't seems to be the moment at which um, people rebel. They rebel when the thumb lifts a little. And again, we saw that in Eastern Europe um, at the height of the Soviet Union when the repression was at its height, nothing. But the moment that thumb came off, and they talked about Perestroika, and socialism with a human face, blah blah blah. That was the moment that that people kicked over the traces and said we're not going to play anymore um it, it wasn't when the thumb was down right. it was when the thumb lifted just a tiny amount but but that anyway that's just my take yeah no and i, I think i that. know
0: what tune we're going to play after this concludes okay yeah rolling stones okay under my thumb
1: oh, okay. what do you think Sure.
0: That's yeah.
3: Great. Okay.
0: So we've been interviewing Tom, and how do you spell his last name again? How do you spell your last name? I don't <laughs> want to talk a, to a you in your third person. Wayman. Wayman.
3: W a y. Tom Wayman. Wayman.
0: I should have. You should have told me that before. I would have been like, way, like, wow. <laughs> anyway, tell the listeners what the name of the book is again.
1: Okay. We've been talking to Tom Wayman, who has written a book called "If You're Not Free at Work, Where Are You Free?" and thanks Tom a resident of the Slocan Valley it's amazing to me always how many people we have around here that are critical thinkers
0: and I think we should have them on again sometime in the future are you open to that Tom sure thank you very much it's been a lot of fun all right cool so you've been listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio my name is Jeff and I'm Anna and we'll see you next week